Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices in strips of linen. This was in accordance with Jewish burial customs. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. Because it was the Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Early on the first day of the week, while it was dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white, seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, Woman, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together, with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. 
But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Uh, I want to say that 1,990 years ago, on a Sunday morning in ancient Palestine, uh, in a garden tomb outside of the city of Jerusalem, Jesus rose from the dead. A man was born in Bethlehem among shepherds. As a child, he was raised as a refugee in Egypt. Later, he apprenticed on how to become a carpenter in a small town of Nazareth. Uh, in his early 30s, he started this tiny movement that like nobody would know about outside of Palestine. And even within Palestine, not everybody knew. He was, he was a teacher, a rabbi, a healer, until he was killed by Roman authorities as a falsely convicted criminal. He was dead. Uh, death by love for the sin, the shame, the guilt, the war, the tyranny, the corruption that is humanity, and Jesus died. But then on that Sunday morning, uh, April 3rd, actually, it's pretty, we know so many things. It's a day that we celebrate today that Jesus of Nazareth, that person, walked out of the grave alive. Uh, Jesus' resurrection from the dead, it defies all expectations of what we expect in this world. Even what we expect when bad things happen, when good things happen, this is like beyond anything. Uh, he breaks this cycle of human self-destruction, uh, and the claim of Christianity is that Jesus, for him, death didn't stick, uh, that death couldn't win, that Jesus' cells, his muscles, his lungs, his body, the, the neurons firing in his brain were brought back to full life. Uh, this is the most audacious claim of all global religions. You know, I know sometimes we're kind of into Greek mythology these days, and we're like, wow, that's crazy. They believe that Zeus and this other person had children. It's like, no, this is way more audacious. This is, this is uh, frankly, to, to our expectations, pretty bizarre. But with, without this claim of resurrection, there is no Christianity, uh, and the claim is, is that Jesus is not compost. Jesus is the once and always king, immortal, invisible. The tomb for him was just a pit stop. Jesus is alive. Now, this is what Christianity is all about. This is the crux of the entire faith. Uh, whether you know it or not, whether you understand what I'm talking about or not, whether you daydream about the resurrection in this Easter morning all the time or never at all, whether you analyze this thing or dwell on this event very much at all, this is the truth. Jesus is the main thing happening in your life. This event and what you do with Jesus is the story of your life. You like to imagine that maybe my story is about me climbing a ladder and gathering all of these things, or my stories, my, my traumas and my hardships. No, the story of your life is that Jesus came out of the tomb. It's the main thing, who he is, what he did, what that means for the world. It's the summation of your existence. One day, you too will face death. You'll be confronted with death in an instant or as an expected 
end of a long journey. You'll face death through the, the ones that you love, through friends, through children, through a father, through a spouse. And the statement that will hang over you in that moment, the most important fact, the most important truth for you, the most profound thought that you will have will be this, Christ is risen from the dead. So what are you doing with Jesus? What are you doing with this claim of resurrection? Uh, This morning, I want to take us on a gentle journey, real gentle, real kind, of that first Easter Sunday and the reactions of these first followers of Jesus, these first witnesses to this reality. And we're going to follow John chapter 20, which Shannon read for us. And so I'm I'm not going to read it again, but I want you, you can turn to it in your technology or paper. There was a time when paper was the most amazing technology. Uh, It still is. Bounded books, what a thing. Anyway, John chapter 20, uh, you can go there. I encourage you to follow along. And as we look at what happens on this first Sunday, I think we'll be confronted with what am I doing with Jesus? Uh, The story starts with Mary going to the garden tomb. Uh, This was likely a, a tomb complex. Uh, the, 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 each of the Gospels describes there's this big roll, kind of wheel-type stone in front of it, uh, signaling that it's, it's kind of this wealthy tomb complex. And what they would do is that they would roll the tomb away, and that inside of it, there were all these little hallways where they would bury people. So a family would own this really like, expensive spot to, to bury people. And in the entryway of that tomb, uh, there would be a staging area for the most recent person who died within the family. And they would put the person there, they would spend a few days wrapping and anointing them, and then eventually take them deeper into the tomb to lay them there. Uh, I I just want to say this as just an aside. Sometimes we Christians talk about the stone in front of the tomb being so big and heavy, and that's why we can believe in the resurrection. I just, I feel compelled to let you know, it was designed to be rolled away. Uh, It was, there were grooves in the stone, it was a whole thing. It would be hard, like a person at six in the morning couldn't do it by themselves, but it it was designed to be rolled back and forth. And so Mary is coming to this kind of tomb complex, ironically not that different from the catacombs that the early Christians in Rome would worship in for years. Like, a, a place of the dead. Uh, and at the entrance of this tomb, she came and she saw that the, the stone was already rolled away and, and that at the staging spot where he had been put before, he wasn't there anymore. Uh, it was empty. This, it was a brand new tomb. No one had ever used it before. Uh, I mean, that's, you know, I guess we experience that, depending on how you want to be buried. But like, uh, new and improved. That was a privilege for him. It was empty until Jesus. It was empty after Jesus. She arrives. She sees that he isn't there. And she runs for help. So then Peter and John run. Peter goes in first, deep into this place of death, looking for him in the hallways and on the the places. What he sees when John comes in too, and what we get to receive are these vivid descriptions of of kind of a, a crime scene. It's pretty remarkable that that by the time the Gospel of John was written, there was decades of theology built out around what happened with the resurrection. But John just wants to give us 
the facts. There's no like weird mysticism or anything in it. It's just, no, we walked in, the cloth was there. Uh, They would put this kind of like a handkerchief over the face of the deceased person. They would tie a rope around their forehead and on their chin, and their, their face would be covered for, you know, all of time. And they would wrap these other things around the rest of their body. And what it takes uh, a lot of detail explaining is that that cloth put on the face is just right there. Uh, it's just laying where it was, nice and neat. They could likely still smell the, the spices and the incense and the oil that was put there just a few days before. And then John leaves with Peter. And they go back to the others, and it says that John believed. But what did he believe? He believed that the tomb was empty. He believed that Mary was right. Mary Magdalene, she was right. There was no body there. The tomb was empty. They had investigated, they had prodded, they had explored, and they had come to this dramatic conclusion. Jesus is not there. Mary was right. The gospel says, John says, he says, we still did not understand. We believed Mary, we believed that the tomb was empty, but we still didn't understand anything about the resurrection. And John is using some narrative to pretty much challenge our assumptions about belief. That you can believe some facts. You can believe that his body wasn't there and still not understand. That you can believe in part but then fundamentally still be distant. Uh, You can uh, dive really deep into the the proofs of Jesus, the historical person of Jesus. Countless scholars and panels and these incredible institutions for generations, like thousands of years, have dedicated themselves to the reality of a person, Jesus. Countless hours. You You can put yourself into all of the robust proofs that Jesus really existed, he said these things. You can understand everything it is to know about Jesus, all the factoids and the verses and all of that stuff. You can know what his words were, you can know his actions, you can know his behaviors. You can pattern your entire life after his teaching, like Tolstoy and Gandhi and all the rest. You can know what Jesus would have done, you know, in high school. You could know how he would have voted, ironically, exactly like me. (laughs) You can know what it means to love your neighbor and still not know the powerful resurrection that is Jesus is alive. John believed, but he didn't understand. You can believe that the Bible is good. You can know the order of the books. Phenomenal, people that can do that. You could have gotten prizes and medals and, you know, the champion of the Bible and still not know the living God. You can uh, Google all of these things. You can research them to death. You can ascribe to them intellectually. Uh, Like many, many a scholar, the tomb was empty. I mean, I can share with you Reams and reams of scholarly articles by people on all sides of the spectrum of like progressive and liberal and conservative and Greek and African and Asian. And you will discover, you can be a scholar just like that, that the tomb was empty. You can look into it. This historical fact 
and still not understand the resurrection. John makes the point. They stood inside the tomb. They stood right there. And Jesus all along had been saying, I'm going to die, I'm going to rise again. I mean, just a few days before, I know it was a long dinner that they had, but he brought it up multiple times. I'm going to go, and you're not going to be able to come with me, but I'm going to... I mean, they, they, it was there. They stood right in the midst of it. And they went back to the others with this belief that the tomb was empty, not that Jesus had risen from the dead, which uh, is, is a little... Uh, impactful just in this sense is that through the book of Acts and through even the other writings around Jewish religious leaders that would have wanted to put down Christianity, never once did any of those people deny an empty tomb. They just denied a resurrection that saves the world through Jesus. They believed the tomb was empty. They didn't understand that every broken thing was restored. Afraid, they went and told their friends, you know? Tomb's empty. Not, Jesus is alive. Really different. Mary comes back and says, I've seen the Lord. They go back and say, they huddle together. They're afraid. They shut the doors. There's these religious leaders out there. I mean, if they believe that the tomb itself was shattered for all humanity and that the one who shattered it was alive roaming around, would they be afraid of a few religious leaders who are underneath piles of bureaucracy with the Roman Empire? But they were afraid. G.K. Chesterton uh, wrote something. He's this English guy. Uh, He's real funny looking too. You'll see in a second. Uh, He articulated something that's really my entire calling and actually your entire calling too. He says, I believe in preaching to the converted. And he was a Christian in England when like everyone was becoming atheists. Like the England we know today, that's what was happening then. And he said, I believe in preaching to the converted. For I've generally found that the converted do not understand their own religion. Family, friends, followers of Jesus, I wonder if we have investigated this empty tomb. We've become familiar with it. We intellectually know, oh, they couldn't find the body. But we don't understand our own religion. That Christ has risen from the grave and will forever reign, and it changes every fear, every hope every scar, every longing that you have for yourself and for this world. Because if Jesus Christ was raised, we were raised too. If Jesus beat death, so did we. If the Son of God defeated evil once, he will defeat it and beat it always. Dostoevsky says it really well through a character that had come to full belief in Brothers Karamazov. And I know you've all read this novel. (laughs) He says, this character, he says, I believe, says that suffering will be healed and made up for. That all the humiliating absurdity of human contradictions will vanish like a pitiful mirage. That in the world's finale, at the moment of eternal harmony, Something so precious will come to pass that it will suffice for all hearts, for the comforting of all resentments, 
for the atonement of all the crimes of humanity, for all the blood that they've shed, that it will make it not only possible to forgive, but to justify all that has happened. This is what understanding the resurrection looks like. That is the impact of it. A world secured. When the disciples do understand, when Christ comes into the room, when Jesus walks into the room and he shows them his scars and he embraces them, they didn't get around in this circle and like stoically analyze it, you know, parsing out words. They didn't sit around and debate. They didn't write a business plan for a movement or create some church rules or talk about how they could get people to give them money. No, what they did was they experienced what it describes here. It says the disciples were overjoyed. The disciples were overjoyed. What is the fruit of belief? Of this belief and understanding of the power of the resurrection. It's, it's not morality or behavior modification. It's not volunteerism. It's not even this robust ability to explain this all to other people. No, the primary, the initial reality is an abundance of joy. And, and frankly, as Christians, as we experience Easter after Easter, we become more intelligent and more intelligent and less and less joyful. But the beginning of understanding the resurrection is joy, an overabundance of joy. And the final state that you will have for all eternity will just be joy also. That all of the things that Dostoevsky longed for aren't just beautiful words in some old Russian novel, but they're true. So what are you doing with the resurrection? Jesus says, as the Father sent me, so I'm sending you in the power of God. Courage, confidence. There's this implication of the resurrection for your life as a citizen of the kingdom of God, that nothing can shake it. But that's not all. There's also Mary. Mary gets left at the tomb crying. Uh, classic patriarchy, you know? Uh, she's crying. They leave her. as a joke. Some of y'all got it. Others of you are staring at me very seriously. Mary's there crying. Angels come to her and say, why are you crying? Mary wanted the body. She didn't want an empty tomb. She wanted to wrap it. She wanted to beautify it, to honor it. And through that process, like when, when someone dies and you experience the whole week of a funeral thing, you're just trying to honor the memory of someone significant to you. Trying to honor the memory of all the hopes that she had, the transformation that she experienced, the love that she knew. Mary was someone healed by Jesus, someone rescued by Jesus, and so I think she has this mixture of grief over the death of Jesus that's still very new, but also the anguish of a disappointment that she had this longing, this desire to do one last thing for him, one last remembering. She was also likely afraid someone stole him. You know, she keeps using, you know, the enemy they. They took him away. Where did they put him? These enemies of the movement, those people who wanted to mock him, they probably want to bury him as a criminal, deny him his dignity, even after he's died. And maybe she's thinking, oh, since this was a borrowed tomb of some rich family, 
Jesus doesn't deserve to be here, and they moved him away. The gardener came, the the caretaker of this, this garden tomb area moved Jesus somewhere else. Like the thousands of people that die on the streets in our country every year. He wasn't treated as worthy. He wasn't significant. And so I think she's weeping in this mixture of grief and fear, anxiety, and frustration. And then she hears someone behind her. And it's this gardener. And the, and the Bible says uh, she saw Jesus, but she didn't realize it was Jesus. She saw right there, but didn't realize. Again, I wonder how many times in our daily lives we are confronted with the authoritative power and hope of resurrection in Jesus right before us and all of the happenings, and we don't see it, we don't know it, we don't recognize it as the living God operating in our midst. We don't realize the power of God right before us, that Jesus, who is dead, is now alive at work around me. We see, but we don't recognize. We grieve what's lost, but we don't behold what will endure. And so how does she get out of this? Uh, it's, a, it's kind of this, uh, John uses several chapters early in the gospel to talk about this blind man who uh, gets to be healed and he can see. But then a lot of the chapters around all the people that observe this that are analyzing if this person who is blind really can't see now. And how did he get allowed to see again? And, And really, John uses it as this ultimate irony that the most religious people who knew the most couldn't see, but were blind. How does she come out of this kind of seeing but blind? He says her name. One of the most beautiful things of all scripture, he just says to her, Mary. And she turns with this abundance of happiness. The happiness of this person you thought was dead is actually alive, uh, which, you know, happened so much after World War II and World War I that people thought that people were dead. And then they walked into their house, happy. Oh my, I thought you were on a field somewhere. I thought you were at the bottom of the ocean, but here you are. That kind of happiness. But what we see is that Jesus using her name shows us that it's good news, not just theoretically for the world, but good news for you, that it is personal. He's alive to you. He is alive with you. You know, he, he died for you, Casey. Um, he rose for you, Sarah. Uh, He died for you, Kristen. Uh, He rose for you, Jessica. Earlier, Jesus told his disciples, he says, I am the good shepherd, and I love my sheep. You know, he's not using us for our wool. He, like, loves us. (laughs) And he says, I call out to them by name, and they answer me. This is a personal resurrection. It changes the core of your being. It's intimate. As one scholar writes, he says, John intentionally tells the story to let all believers know that the resurrection fundamentally changes our relationship to Christ. In other words, Jesus isn't a story. 
He isn't a philosophy. He isn't a lost friend. He isn't an ancient teacher. Uh, He isn't Tolstoy or Plato or MLK. He is your living story. He is your living friend. He's your living teacher. He's your living God. And she utters the confession and creed for many believers who know and are transformed by him. She says, I have seen the Lord. And she runs back and she tells these other people who are still locked up and still afraid, I've seen the Lord. I've seen him. What are you doing with Jesus? Is he your living savior, personal and close? In every moment of grief and ecstasy. But there's one person who missed out on all of these moments. Uh, Thomas wasn't at the meeting that the disciples had uh, when they were afraid. He wasn't in the garden with Mary. He didn't stand in the tomb with John and Peter. He wasn't there at all on Easter morning or evening. Thomas. And he's given this amazing opportunity, right? He's given this amazing privilege to believe without seeing. All the disciples are saying, we've seen the Lord now. It was amazing. He should have been here. We put our fingers in his scars. He showed them to us. We hugged him. We embraced. I thought he was a gardener at first, but now I know. I've seen him. You should have been here. You should believe it. Thomas says, kind of ultimatum-ish. He says, unless I see, unless I touch, unless I put my hands there, I won't believe. He asks for what the other disciples had. You know, and his name is Twin, which is given to the second of a set of twins. I'm a second child. I understand how it goes. You miss out. He's missing out. I want what you had. I don't want to believe without seeing. You don't believe without seeing. I don't want to believe without seeing either. He wants to recite the creed himself. I've seen the Lord. I have so much compassion for Thomas. Uh, Thomas is often wrongly labeled Doubting Thomas, as if part of his identity is doubt. People talk about, yeah, he was prone to doubt. He's prone to get it wrong. He was arrogant. I mean, some people talk about him as if he was a modern, secular humanist, which is amazing because he was alive 2,000 years ago. That he's some sort of Bacon or Locke or Descartes or Darwin, and he's all wrapped up in that. But Thomas, actually, he, he has more stuff about him than this. There's a story of when Jesus and his disciples find out that Lazarus is sick and dying. And they come to him and they come to Jesus and it's like, you should go back. And Jesus is like, all right, I'm going to go and see my friend who's dying. I'm going to go. The rest of the disciples are afraid. That's really close to Jerusalem. I think if you go, you might die. And then the rest of the disciples are like, I guess he's going. Should we go? And Thomas says, let's all go with him that we could die with him. That's Thomas. Thomas saying, if Jesus is going to visit his friend, who's also our friend, and if he's going to die, I want to die right alongside him. A lot of people think that the reason he wasn't there that night when Jesus appears to the disciples is because he wasn't afraid. In the Last Supper discussion, uh, Jesus is talking poetically about vines and ways and paths and going places that he can't go and And Thomas says, how can we go where you're going if you don't show us the way? 
which is what leads Jesus to saying, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. But what Thomas is saying is, please tell us and I'll go there. Thomas wasn't some sort of passive philosophical doubter smoking his pipe high in some ivory tower of privilege, you know? He wasn't from this like Cambridge or an Oxford. Or, he was just a friend of a man who had died. He was a follower of this whole new way of viewing the world. Thomas was an early adopter who had been profoundly, profoundly let down. I mean, I resonate. He put all of his chips on this Jesus and this kingdom, and he was so let down by it. See, uh, real debates and anguish about the reality of Jesus don't happen in all-inclusive resorts around pools with drinks with little umbrellas in them. Thomas's doubt is the doubt that happens in the muted silence of a hospital room that's now a morgue or of a school that's now a crime scene. Thomas's request is the request that swells up within all of us when the world outside looks nothing like the world we want to be part of. He, he's, it's the doubt of a person who had a confidence in the kingdom, but now it's waning because it seems like all of the other kingdoms are like spiraling towards this massive destruction. And the kingdom I believe in seems to be like impotent to do anything about. How easily they killed Jesus. I mean, how easy was that? He got one of his friends to out him, and then they took him out of the... I mean, it, it took hours. The kingdom that they had all put years into seeing and hoping for, squashed like an like a insignificant bug. Like the Roman Empire doesn't even register it on their like, daily accounting. That fast, that is doubt. Or at least the doubt that, you know, I have a lot of space for. There's space for that doubt in this church. There's space for this doubt in the kingdom of God. You know, we have doubts like, where is Jesus? Some people say they're experiencing him all the time. They have some closet somewhere, and they're just experiencing Jesus. We argue back, why doesn't he arrive in my life then? We, we hear people say, oh yeah, he healed my friend. Well, why doesn't he heal me? We hear people say, I can't believe it. The other day I opened this thing and I got all this money and it's exactly what I needed. Why doesn't he give me that kind of stuff? I've obeyed. I was willing. Where's God? Where's Jesus? I know this doubt. And then Jesus walks into the room and he says, peace be with you. It's what he keeps saying. And we could... We could get a lot into the peace be with you thing, but really, it's just how people said hello. <laughs> Even to this day, you go to the Middle East, that's how people are going to say hello to you. Jesus walks into the room, he goes to, to Thomas, and he's like, hello, I'm here. I'm here. In the same way that he's always said hello to them. I mean, he had to have said peace be with you countless times to these disciples. He goes and he says, here's my scars. Here's my side. Here's my hands. 
He goes, stop doubting and believe, Thomas. Jesus is the expert witness. This stuff happened to him. And he says, you can stop doubting and you can believe. I apologize, but Dostoevsky also said, <laughs> it's not as a child that I believe. Like, a, like we believe in Santa or something. I'm sorry. Not as a child that I believe and confess Christ, he says. He says, my Hosanna has passed through an enormous furnace of doubt. Thomas went through that furnace and he said, my Lord, my God. Uh, profoundly doesn't say, I've seen the Lord. He offers this confession that's ours too. Our creed, he's my Lord and he's my God. It has echoes of Psalm 34 where uh, David is writing and singing and praying out like, how long and I want you to answer me and all of that. And then in the end he says, I've tasted and I've seen that the Lord is good. It's a fundamental shift in how you believe and what you think about all things and doubt and all the rest. We thought we believed stuff. Now we believe Jesus himself. Jesus says uh, at the end, he says, you believe because you've seen. It's verse 29. But blessed are those who have not seen, yet have believed. This is past tense thing. There's people that are already believing in this Jesus that haven't seen. And you might think, how do I take up my place my spot in this long chain, a 2,000-year chain of people that goes from us all the way to that room. How do we take up our place in the chain of people who believed without seeing? How do we do that? We didn't get to touch. We didn't get to see. We don't stand in the tomb. We have to believe without seeing, yeah? There's an Italian artist from the 17th century, Caravaggio, and he had one name, so you know he was good. <laughs> and he depicts this scene, I think it's one of his more famous paintings, it's called The Incredulity of Thomas, and, and you can put it up, yeah. The artist, he believed that uh, for Thomas, uh, because of the way the gospel was written, his problem wasn't... Uh, doubt, but a lack of belief. That's why he labeled it the incredulity. And it was something that was, that was happening that he held, like this, it was like a noun that he had. I have doubt. He had incredulity, a lack of, of belief around it. But it wasn't a definition of who he was, Thomas. Just like it doesn't define us. And so he painted this. It's, I mean, it's so intimate, right? There he is. Thomas is torn. He has dirt underneath his fingernails. His eyes are so open, right? And he's sticking his finger straight into the side. It went, but Jesus is holding his hand, guiding it in there. Caravaggio intentionally paints himself and paints us into the background. Looking on over his shoulder. Do you see these two people? looking where Thomas is looking, 
Each of us leaning over, believing because he believed. John writes in the following verse, he says, these are, these are written. There's a lot of things I could tell you about. Jesus did a lot of stuff. But I wrote all of this so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you might have life, life abundant. So what we are left to do is to take the centuries, the millions, the thousands, thousands of martyrs, the millions of believers, people who grow up and live and die, who we've never met before and we will never meet, who have come to believe Jesus is the Lord and he's my God because he walked out of the tomb. Explore alongside us. Watch other people believe. Understand that these eyewitnesses were given names and places so that in the ancient world you could go to them and say, Thomas, did this happen? We're on their shoulders. We're looking in. Behold and take a a grip on this abundant life. If you don't believe, stop doubting and believe, and you will have life, never-ending, abundant life. Death will have no grip over you. Sin will have no sting over your life. Shame will not have the last word. Guilt will have no say in who you are. The only thing that will hang over you are these words. Jesus is my Lord and my God. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you for Thomas and the disciples you loved that you called by name. Help us be a people of belief Help us give space for doubts, but let us be a people that examine and explore and then come to a faith and an understanding. Give us courage to pray, courage to cry out, courage to live in the city with boldness. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.